It has been a blessing to be here this weekend and get to meet some of you folks. And I will say this, I'm originally from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, so it's nice to be back down in the south, and here's the reason why you guys are huggers, and, and I like that. And uh, being in the Midwest, there's not a lot of huggers in the Midwest, so it's kind of nice. I told Jeff, I was like, man, your church is a bunch of huggers. I like that. So it's been nice to kind of get a little bit uh, back in the south because of that. Uh, but we're going to be in Psalms 23 today. And I don't know about you, but there are some places in God's Word to me that are just so powerful and so rich. Like when you read them, you just, you just feel moved by the words that you read. And I believe Psalms 23 is, is one of those passages for us. It's such a personal psalm for so many people. I know that pretty much at every funeral I've officiated, I've read Psalms 23. I know as I say Psalms 23, many of you probably go back to maybe hearing your mother read it or your grandmother or somebody in your family. And it just brings back some very personal memories for you. When my grandmother was sick and, and, and close to, to passing away, I remember reading this psalm to her, and I can remember her reaching out saying, I see the green pastures, right? It's, it has that type of personal connection to it. And as we read it this morning, I'd encourage you to look at the words that David uses. And David makes this a very personal psalm. You don't see any us's and we's in here. You see him talking about my shepherd and I shall not want, right? It's a very personal psalm. So with that, David writes this in Psalms chapter 23, verse 1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I love this. I love that fact that he says I lack nothing. Because what does that mean? It means that God provides for our needs. All the time, God is providing for our needs. Now, there's a difference between needs and wants, right? Like, we all have wants. Like, for example, I would love when I, we go back home to Kansas for one of my men come up to me and said, the Lord told me you needed a boat. Like, I would love for that to happen, right? But we understand that's not a need, that's a want, right? We understand the difference between needs and wants. But God always provides for our needs to a point to where David says, I lack nothing. A few months ago, Becca's car just just broke down on us, and I take it to the shop, and I'm looking, okay, how, how, how much is this thing going to cost us, and all that, and the, he gives us the, the estimate, which I know i got to add a couple more hundred dollars on top of that, right? So he gives us the estimate, and I said, well, we got to fix it, so I remember walking away thinking, Lord, <laughs> I don't really want to spend that kind of money. Lord, well, I just need you to provide somehow. Somehow I'll have my mortgage company and call me and tell me that the mortgage ferry paid off my mortgage, something. I don't know. Just do something, Lord. Very next Sunday, one of my men come up to me and says, this was in the offering plate. It was an envelope, had my family's name on it, and opened up the exact amount of money we needed to fix our car. The exact amount of money. And I just remember going back to the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Right? So that's what David says. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And then he says in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. And we're like, yes, I want this, right? I want the green pastures. I want him to guide me. I want him to allow me to rest and to restore my soul. I want those things. But now look at verse 4. It says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Can I say this is foundational to us as believers? 
is understanding that even in our dark valleys, the Lord is very much present. I know sometimes when you're in a dark valley or you're in a trial, sometimes the last thing you think about is the Lord's presence in that. Because you're just looking and you're thinking, how in the world am I going to get out of this? How in the world are we going to fight our way through this? But David says, even in the dark valley, even in the difficult times, the Lord is very much present. My daughter is now 16, but when she was a little girl, she had a hard time falling asleep at night. Very difficult time falling asleep at night. She hated the dark, and she hated to be alone in the dark. So what I would have to do as a dad is I would sit next to her bed, and she would fall asleep. So did that for a few nights, and then I'd move about halfway in the middle of her room, right? She could still see me, still knew dad was there, and she'd fall asleep. Then I'd move closer to the door and closer to the door, and then I'd find myself sitting on the outside of her door with just my hand inside of her door so she could see, and she knew that dad was there. In the midst of her darkness, right, in the midst of what she felt was very difficult times as a two, three, four-year-old little girl, she knew that dad was there. Can I tell you this today? In the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your heartache, David reminds us that God is there. He says, in the dark valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He goes on to say, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And verse 5 is where we're going to spend most of our time at today. But he says, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think when we read verse 4, we see Psalms 23 takes a weird turn, right? Everything's about how good God is, right? He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us. He guides us. Then it takes this weird turn to where he all of a sudden he's talking about a dark valley, and then right after the dark valley, he says, you prepare this table before me in the presence of my enemies. So to help us draw a connection between what David is saying here in verse 4 and verse 5, I'd like to take a few moments just to share my story with you. You guys don't know me. I don't know you. Met a few of you today, shook your hand, and a few of you hugged me, and I was like, I'm home, right? Like, let me share my story with you. My mom was a senior in high school when I was born. It was not planned, obviously. Because of that, I never met my father. My father, when he found out that my mom was pregnant, he just stepped out of the picture altogether. All I have is a name. I've never met him. My mom, through a series of bad choices in her life, became very much addicted to drugs and alcohol. I can remember seeing my mom at age four, five, six years old, being strung out, being hung over. I remember being five, and my mom passed out in her room, and I had two little sisters, and I remember thinking, we have to eat. So I remember trying to figure out a way to heat up some hot dogs in the microwave so my sisters could eat. When I was eight, my, my mother passed away of a drug overdose alone in a hotel room. Thank the Lord I had two wonderful grandparents who came in and adopted us three kids and took us in as theirs and gave us their name and, and I became their son. And I grew up in that household and 
but still very much wanted nothing to do with church and wanted nothing to do with God because in my mind as an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, a God who wouldn't come in and help my mother in her situation, I want nothing to do with. That was my mindset. And then at age 13, I found my way into a church. And I found my way into a church not because of Jesus, but because this girl I was dating. She told me, you need to come to church with me. I said, well, I think you're cute, so I'll go to church with you. So, now, I, I don't advise that, okay? That's, that missionary dating doesn't always work out. I wouldn't advise that, but I came in and to church, and at age 13, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Remember my life changing little by little. Remember going to Bible college right after my senior year in high school. That's where I met Jeff. And that's all I'll say about our times in college together because of the pack that we have. So, and because he gets the microphone last. So I'm not. <laughs> that's where I met Jeff. And, and we got connected there. And we spent a year and a half together in Bible college. And after that year and a half, he came back to Georgia. I went back to Texas and started working at my home church as a junior high youth pastor at age 19. No business doing that, but that's what I was doing. I transferred, finished my school in Texas, and worked at that church for, for about eight years. And, and through some just arrogance, and on my part, I ended up losing that job and found myself out of ministry. I remember praying and saying, Lord, would you just please... Restore me, put me back into ministry. This is what I desire to do. I want to work in a church to reach people. And, and through the Lord's grace, and he worked into my life, and we found ourselves living in New York, working at a church in New York as youth pastors and eventually associate pastor. And while we were in New York, my grandfather got really sick with cancer. And I remember longing to be home with him, but we lived in New York, and didn't have the money to travel back and forth. And um, I, I can remember going back and visiting one time and only being able to spend just a few days and having to fly back. And one Saturday, I get a phone call from my grandfather. And I pick it up, and I said, hey, Papa, how you doing? He's like, fine, son, just want to let you know I love you. I said, well, I love you too, Papa. And it's like, how are things going? He goes, son, I didn't call to talk to you. I just called to let you know I love you. I got other people to call said okay got off the phone the next day got a call from my aunt that he had passed away he just wanted to tell me he loved me from new york we went to illinois worked at a church in illinois and then found our way to where we're currently at in ark city kansas love the people there love our church there two years into our pastorate there our youngest son was diagnosed with epilepsy and it's been a struggle working through that with him and then about two and a half years ago, um, my grandmother got really sick. And luckily, I was within driving distance, five hours, so did a lot of commute back and forth her last two or three months that she was alive. And so it was a blessing to be able to be with her and to pray with her and to sit with her. And I remember on my last trip back from Texas to Kansas, I remember praying in the car and saying, Lord, I'm okay if you take her. I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm at peace with that. But Lord, just help me to be there. I just want to be there. I wasn't able to be there with my grandfather. I just want to be there. I remember getting home thinking, 
The Lord's going to do that for me. I'm going to be there. And then Saturday night at 10 o'clock, we get a phone call from my aunt that my grandmother passed away. I remember thinking like, God, all I asked was just that you allow me to be there. Woke up the next morning, preached on that Sunday morning, then drove down to Texas and officiated the, the ceremony. Of all the loss in my life, my grandmother was the hardest. And the reason being is I told my wife, I said, in that moment, I felt like an orphan. Didn't have my, my parents anymore. My grandparents were gone in that moment. I just, I felt lost. I just felt like an orphan. It was difficult. So why do I tell you about my dark valleys? Because of verse 5. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? It means through my dark valleys, God was sustaining me. He was carrying me through. He was encouraging me. He was pushing me through them. And that's what Psalms 23 verse 5 is all about. It shows us that God sustains us. As humans, we only have so much strength and energy on our own, don't we? But God is without limits. That's why we must allow him to sustain us. So when we're tired, when we're troubled, when we're weak, it's God the one, is the one who sustains us and gives us what we need to get through it. So the question then becomes, how does God sustain us? Number one, if you're taking notes, God sustains us by giving us strength. He said, you prepare a table before me. So David has written about God being a provider, a guide, a comfort, someone who takes us through dark valleys. Now he speaks of him as a host, and David is a guest. To be very honest with you, I'm not a very good host. If you ever make your way up to Kansas, right around where we live, I'll invite you over, but I'm not a good host. My wife's an excellent host, but I'm not. Matter of fact, when we have folks coming over, she'll ask me, she's like, did you get bottled water? No. Why I need bottled water? We've got a tap water right there. They can go, I'll give them some ice so it's cold, but there's, you can get it out of the faucet. She's like, Ryan, that's not filtered. I'm like, well, the city filters it. That's fine. If I'm going to pull out food, I'm pulling out a bag of chips and setting it on the counter. If you want to drink, I'm handing you a red Solo cup and telling you to fend for yourself. Now, some of you shook your heads. You were like, yeah, red Solo cup. You're my people, okay? But at the end of the day, I'm just not a good host. I don't do that well. Friday night, you ladies had a tea, right? And some of you hosted tables, and you did a great job. They were fine. They're decorated. They looked nice. If that was me, it'd have been paper plates and some red solo cups, and maybe you would have had a napkin. I can't even promise you that. You guys did a great job hosting, right? If you've been hosted, you know that feeling. This weekend, Jeff and his sweet life, Melissa, has hosted us and have done a great job doing that. And I just want to pause right here, and I don't say this because he's my buddy, but you guys have an amazing pastor. Amen. An amazing pastor's wife. You do. I've known this man for a long, long time. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He's still a little ugly, but that's okay. <laughs> but the one thing that is consistent with Jeff is his faithfulness, 
his love for the Lord and his love for people. They've done a great job hosting us this weekend. And that's what David is trying to get across here. He said, God prepares his table for us. He's the host. It's all on him. So what does this mean for us? Follower of Jesus, we have to stop thinking that everything depends on us. We've got to get that out of our mind. The betterment of your kids, the betterment of your marriage, your life, it doesn't all hinge on you. Why? Because God is the one who sustains us. He's the source. Psalms chapter 54, verse 4 says this, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Our reliance is on God alone, but can I be honest with you? I struggle with this. I put so much pressure on myself. I like to think that everything falls on my shoulders and everything rises and falls with me. I like to think my church, the success of my church is up to me. I like to think through my creativeness and through my planning and through my sermons and through my teaching that my church is just going to grow, right? It's just, it all depends on me. I think my family is up to me. I look at my three kids and, man, I love my kids. But I so desperately want them to walk the right way and do the right things. And I feel like all that falls on my shoulders, like all that's up to me. And the reason I feel that way is because ultimately I like control. I like to be in control. But there have been some times in my life where I realized I don't have any control at all. One of those was with your pastor. We were in college. The only college story I'm sharing. We were in college, and we all went to Branson, Missouri, Table Rock Lake, and we were cliff jumping into the, into the lake, having a good time. Some of you are shaking your head because you probably already know where this story's going. Having a good time. We get up to this one. It's a little bit higher than any of the others we'd been at, and it's got a rope that you swing off of the tree into the water. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's having a great time. I'm hanging back in the back because I'm not real confident about this. Jeff goes, and he swings out and, like, does a somersault flip thing. I don't know what he did, but I don't think it was intentional. I think it just, <laughs> I think it looked real cool, but it wasn't intentional. So then it comes to be my turn. And I grab a hold of this rope, and I'm yanking on it, not feeling real good about it. Then I walk to the edge, and I kind of peer over, and there's a bunch of jagged rocks, and then the water. So I'm thinking, I got about five feet I got to clear. I know my long jumping skills, and I'm not feeling real confident at this point. So finally, I just said, fellas, I don't think this rope's going to hold my weight. I don't think I got this. So I'm going to bow out of this one. And Jeff, in all wisdom, it was like, Ryan, you're right. You probably shouldn't do this. That's the wisdom of the Lord speaking to your heart. Don't do it, Ryan. That's not what he said. <laughs> he looked at me and said, oh, man, come on. You got this. You can do this. Right? He can do this, guys. And I see everybody else like. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everyone's like, yeah, you got this, man. You got this. You can do this. You can do this. And I'm thinking. I ain't got this, but I can't back out now. So I grab this rope, step back. It's got a knot here and then a knot at the bottom. I'm not quite sure where to put my hands on this rope. I'm thinking I'm going to go with the top knot because worst case scenario, if it slips, I got a bottom knot to catch me. That's my mindset. Not smart, but that's my mindset. So I do that. I do a quick prayer. Say, Lord, guide me, protect me. 
go running. I jump out. And as soon as I jump, my hand starts slipping through the rope. Like, it was terrible. Feel my hand slipping. And the only thing I know to do when a rope is slipping out of my hands is to grab it again. Well, when I do this, my body weight jolts me to where now I'm not falling feet first. I'm now falling ribs first. So I'm now like this. And I'm falling. And in that moment, I just remember thinking, this is how my life ends. Like, I'm going to splatter all over these rocks. It's going to be terrible. And at that moment, I remember thinking, I have zero control of my situation right now. Luckily, I hit the water. Jeff and a couple other guys jumped in because they thought I had died. They're like, our buddy is gone. How are we going to tell his girlfriend? Like, what is, what's going to happen here? I get out of the water immediately, a nasty bruise all the way down my side. It was terrible. Zero control. The other time I felt like I had zero control was yesterday when I was driving in Savannah. <laughs> Tell y'all what, y'all are huggers, but y'all some crazy drivers. I remember driving in there looking over at my wife, and she's over there silently praying, filling out our will. You know, it was crazy. I remember thinking at one point, just like, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know what to do here. I'm in Savannah. I don't know where I'm going. Right? Everybody's honking at me, waving, and we'll say they're waving. But here's the thing. We like to think we have control of our lives, our situations, the things that happen. But the reality is we have very little control. About a year and a half ago, right after my grandmother had passed away, I was just in a dark place personally. I knew I needed to go and talk to somebody and, and get some counseling. And so I told the men in my church, I said, I, I need to get away for about three or four days. And there's a place I can go that'll do some pastoral counseling with me. I said, I just need to go. I just need to get away. I said, because my mind is not right right now. And they graciously said, go, take as much time as you need. So I went and met with this individual and was telling him everything that was on my heart and all the, all the bad things I felt were happening to me and, and all the pressure I felt. And he told me this. He said, Ryan, God doesn't need you. Man, I felt so encouraged after hearing that. I just felt so encouraged. I said, well, thanks a lot, pal. I'm supposed to here for you to encourage me, not to discourage me, right? He said, Ryan, God doesn't need you. He doesn't rely on you, but he wants to use you. There's a big difference there. You see, so many times in our lives we think, man, God needs me. God needs me in Ark City to pastor Northside Baptist Church. He needs me there. God needs me in my house. God needs me at my job. God, ne God needs me, but the truth of the matter is this. God doesn't need anything. He's God, but he desires to use us. And there's a big difference in that. We have to believe that God desires to use us, and we believe that it takes control away from us and puts it where it rightly belongs. You see, everything about my life, myself, has to be fully reliant on God and his strength, because apart from him, plain and simple, I can do nothing. John chapter 15, verse 5, says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Notice in this verse, our job isn't to produce fruit. Many times we look at this verse and we think, our job is to produce fruit. We're to, we're to be fruit producers, right? That's what we're to do as Christians, is to bear fruit. But notice, that's not what our job is. What does he say? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's he saying is, your job as a believer is to stay connected to the vine. Is to stay connected to Christ. And when you stay connected to Christ, you'll bear fruit. Fruit becomes a byproduct of that. But our job isn't to produce. Our job is to connect because he is the one who sustains us. Number two, God sustains us by giving us peace. It says, you prepare this table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've always wondered how David could be so confident in his dark valleys. And this is why. He said, in the presence of my enemies, you give me strength. You sustain me when my enemies are closing in. I think sometimes when we read this verse, we think of it this way. We're sitting at this table feasting, and all of our enemies are just watching us feast. Right? And, and that's, a good, that's a good picture to think of in our mind, right? Because we all have people in my mind where we think, you know what? I want them to see me succeed. They've been so rotten to me, I want them to see me succeed. I want them to see God's blessings on my life. I want them to see me doing well. But that's not what David's talking about here. What he's talking about isn't this idea of our enemies watching us as God just blesses us. There's a couple reasons why he's not talking about that. One, it lifts us up, right? Puts others down, and, and that's not what God's about. But number two, it also makes other people out to be our enemies, and we know that our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemy isn't the individual who was mean to us or the individual who has done us wrong. No, there are people in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness just like we are. So what is David trying to say? In the presence of my enemies, in the presence of my dark valleys, my trials, in the presence of my anxiety, my depression, my poor self-worth, in the presence of those things, God gives me strength. And because of that, I can find peace. He prepares this table before me in the presence of my trials, my dark valleys, in the presence of my enemies, so that I can be strengthened and have peace, because peace ultimately comes from God. Philippians chapter 4 reads this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In other words, Paul is saying, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. My wife's really good about this. My wife can lose her car keys, and she'll start praying for them. And somehow God just magically drops them from the ceiling, right in front of her. I lose something, and the first thing she'll ask me, did you pray about it? No. Been too busy looking for them. I ain't got time to pray. God doesn't care that I lost my keys. God doesn't care that I lost my wallet, right? That's my mindset. But what is Paul telling us? If it's big enough for us to worry about, it's big enough for us to pray about, right? See, worry should be a prayer alarm. When you start worrying about something, that should be an alarm in your head that says, okay, I need to pray about this. You worried about your kids? I need to pray about them. You worried about your job? I need to pray about that. Worried about your spouse? I need to pray about that. You worried about whether or not you're going to have enough money at the end of the month? I need to pray about that. If you're worried about it, we need to pray for it. But what I've found is I only pray about the things I don't think I can fix. I only pray about the things that I don't think I can fix. If I think I can handle it, I ain't going to pray about it. 
And sadly, I think I can handle way too much in my life. But look at the response when we pray. It says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's this idea that the peace of God stands guard at your heart. So when anxiety comes, the peace of God says, there's no room for you here. When self-doubt comes, the peace of God says, there's no room for you here. When depression comes, the peace of God says, there's no room for you here. Because this individual is praying. And this individual is finding their peace and their sustaining power in the Lord. Number three, God sustains us by giving us purpose. He said, you prepare this table for me in the presence of my enemies. He said, you anoint my head with oil. God sustains us by giving us strength, by giving us peace, but also by giving us purpose. In the Old Testament, oil was used to commission certain people to do the work God had called them to do. It was an anointing them because God had a job for them to do. The oil would be completely poured over their head and serve as a covering and anointing, and this anointing gave them purpose. So the table speaks of strength, and the oil speaks of purpose. I know this, that there's nothing that can keep someone going like purpose. My grandfather, when he was sick, I remember sitting with him, and he's like, son, I'm ready, I'm ready to go home. And as his pastor and his son, I remember telling him, well, Papa, go home. It's okay. We're good. We're okay. You can go. Then he said this. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, your mom isn't ready for me to go home yet. Nana isn't ready for me to go home yet. I'll go when she's ready. That was his purpose. Kept fighting, kept going. That was his purpose. Our grandmother, when she was sick, said, Ryan, I, I want to go see Jesus. She goes, but I really want to go see Jack. That was my grandfather. I said, well, Nana, it's okay. We're, we're, we're all okay. We're good. You can go. You don't have to keep fighting anymore. And then she said this. She's like, no. I want to make sure that everybody knows how much I love them. When they know that, that's when I'll go. That was her purpose. She kept going. She kept fighting. Can I tell you this? God has a purpose for your life. As long as you draw breath, you have a purpose. Every morning you wake up, God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for your life. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It says we're God's handiwork or his masterpiece. And basically of all that God has created, he says you're my masterpiece. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever been in awe of nature? Just saying, man, look what God has created, how beautiful this is. God says, that's not my masterpiece. You're my masterpiece. You're thinking, God, I'm pretty broken. I'm, I'm a pretty broken person. God says, no, you're my masterpiece because I have a purpose for you. I have a job for you to do. You were created to do good works. You were created on purpose, for a purpose. There are no accidents by God. Well, you may have been unplanned by your parents. You were not unplanned by God. I was not planned by my mother when she was a senior in high school, but I was planned by God for a purpose and on purpose. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says this, 
He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. If you're a follower of Christ today, he saved you and called you and gifted you for a purpose. He's given you purpose. You may be thinking, I don't know what my purpose is, Ryan. Maybe you're sitting back here and you're like, Ryan, I've lived a really long life. And I've done some things in my life. And right now, I just feel like I'm on the back end of my life. And I just don't see how God could have much purpose for me. I can see how God can have purpose for people that are younger in age. But for me, Ryan, I just don't see it. Can I tell you this? You've got wisdom to share. God has a purpose for you without a shadow of a doubt. There are people in this church that need you to come alongside them, mentor them, pour into their life. I've got an older man in my church who is such a blessing to me. His name is Ed. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later. But that man is such an encourager. He comes alongside me every Sunday and he just pours into me. And every time I sit with him and talk to him, I feel like I'm sitting and talking with my grandfather all over again. God has a purpose for you. Number four, God sustains us by giving us joy. Because my cup overflows. I feel like there's this downbeat version of Christianity that goes something like this. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You'll be surrounded by enemies, but somehow you just got to get through it. Right? Like this world is tough. Life is hard. You just got to pull yourself up and you just got to somehow get through it. And just, if you can just hold on and endure to the end, you've got heaven waiting for you. Bless the Lord, right? That's sometimes our mentality, but that's not what David's talking about here. David's saying you can have joy today, right? Yes, we have heaven to look forward to and praise the Lord for that. And in heaven, there is no more tears, no more hurt, no more sorrow, all those things. But David is trying to let us know as a follower of Christ, you can have joy today. Now, there's a difference between joy and happiness, isn't there? Yesterday, Jeff and his wife took us out to breakfast down in Savannah. What was the place? Huey's. He introduced me to these little things called beignets. Now, I'm telling you, brother. Now, I had never had a beignet before. Never had them, never even heard of the things. My wife swears I've had them. But I looked, when that thing showed up at my plate, and I looked at this thing and said, I ain't never had this. And then I tasted it. And I said, I would have remembered this. <laughs> and that thing, was, that thing was good. And then I poured on the little syrup with the little pecans that were in. Woo. Tell you what, I, first bite of that I took, I was so happy. I was so happy I took that bite. And I, in my mind, I thought, this is what the Bible talks about when he says manna from heaven. I've got no doubt. In my mind, I said, I don't know why they were so grumpy about getting manna all the time. If God just fed me this all day, I'd be good. It was so good. I was so happy. Until I saw somebody else at the table, not me, take the last bite of the last beignet. I wasn't happy no more. They were gone. And then my omelet showed up. My omelet was good, but I wanted more beignets. All right, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Why? Because happiness is circumstantial, right? Happiness is based on our circumstances at that time. Everything's going good, we're happy. We got money in the bank, we're happy. Our bills are paid, we're happy. Our kids aren't acting up, we're happy. Right? It's all circumstantial. 
joy isn't based on our circumstances. Joy is based on a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. John 16, verse 33 says this. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, we don't take joy because life is always good. Sometimes life is not good. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life sucker punches us and we're not ready for it. We don't take joy in the bad circumstances, right? That's not what he's talking about here. It's not this idea of your world's falling apart and you're just like, yay, thank you, Lord, I love this. That's not what it's talking about. No, sometimes life is hard, so we don't take joy in that. We take joy in a God who is always good. We take joy in a God who's always there for us. We take joy in the fact that we have a relationship with a God who can sustain us through the dark times. John 15, verse 9. says, The Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. There's that idea again of just staying connected to the Father. He says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Joy sustains us. Not because it's a feeling or an emotion, but joy is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. That's why real joy, real peace, real strength, real purpose is only found through a relationship with Jesus. So the question I have for you is, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you know Jesus? Not do you go to church. Not did your grandmother go to church. Not have you served at a church. Not have you held a baby in the nursery. Not have you played an instrument. But do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Because if you do, then you know peace. If you do, then you know strength. If you do, you understand that he sustains but the only way to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior is to trust in him and his death, burial, and resurrection. He died on a cross for you, for your sins. He says, all you have to do is put your faith in me, trust in me, and he becomes your Savior. And once he's your Savior, then you find that strength, peace, purpose, and joy, which allows us to say, my cup overflows. My friend Ed that I mentioned earlier, Ed's well into his 70s and has gone through some struggles of his own. And every Sunday that I see him or every time he's one of our deacons, anytime we sit in a meeting together, I always ask him, Ed, how are you doing today? And I know what's going on in his life. I know the struggles he's facing. And this is his response every single time. I'm blessed, buddy. I'm just blessed. I remember asking him, I said, Ed, I know the struggles you're going through. He said, well, pastor, everything doesn't have to be good for you to be blessed. Because I'm just blessed. Ed understands my cup overflows. Let me end with a question today. Well, two, actually. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you're unsure about that, I know I would love to show you through his word how you can accept him as your Savior. I know Jeff would love to sit down with you and show you through his word how you can accept him as your Savior. That's the first question. Do you know Jesus? If your answer to that question is yes, the next question I have for you is this. 
In what way do you need God to sustain you today? What do you need from the Lord today? Remember, Psalms 23 is a very personal psalm. So what do you need from the Lord today? Do you need his strength? Do you need his peace? Do you need purpose? Or you just need joy? What do you need from the Lord today? I'd ask if you bow your head and I'd ask the band begin to make their way forward. And right now we're going to go into response time. And this is your opportunity just to do business with the Lord. This is your opportunity to respond to the Lord on how he has spoken to you. I understand that you don't know me and, and I don't know you. I know nothing about your story. I know nothing about your journey. But I do believe that you are not here by an accident. I believe you are sitting exactly where you're at today on purpose. It's because God had something he wanted to speak into your life. Some truth he wanted to speak to you today. And he desires that you respond to that truth. So in a moment I'm going to pray and then the band's going to play. And as they play, this is just your opportunity to respond back to the Lord. You can come forward and you can pray if you feel so led. You want somebody to pray with you. I know me or, or Jeff would love to kneel next to you and pray with you. You can pray at your seat, absolutely. But I do know there's something about surrendering when you walk forward and say, God, I just need you. God, I need you today. I need your strength. I need your joy. I need your peace. God, I need your purpose. So this is your opportunity to respond back to the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you for today. God, I thank you for your word. God, and I thank you for the fact you sustain us. Father, I pray that as you have spoken to us, Lord, that we will respond to you. In your name we pray.